first time this morning. Uh, we have been, um, it, it's our practice typically, more often than not, to preach through books of the Bible. Uh, and we are now at our next to last uh, sermon in the book of Malachi. It's the last uh, prophet of the Old Testament. Um, I've mentioned before, not the last book written. Uh, there are a couple others after this. Ezra, Nehemiah, First and Second Chronicles are all uh, after Malachi, but he is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Malachi chapter uh, 3. Uh, it's our practice to stand when we read God's Word. Uh, so if you are able, let me ask that you do that now. Malachi 3, beginning in verse 13. Your words have been, have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping this charge, his charge, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they do they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before them of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would be at work in and among us now. Uh, we are distracted. Our hearts are hard. We are, uh, our eyes, our minds are, are dim and weak. Uh, we um, want so many other things so frequently besides knowing and understanding Your Word. And we pray that You would be at work in it and through it even now. Uh, change our hearts. Use this, your word, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in his name that we make this prayer. Amen. You may be seated. So, uh, back in the 80s, uh, Janet Jackson uh, sang a song, um, What Have You Done For Me Lately? Uh, it's all this sort of standard relationship fair. Uh, we used to go out dancing all the time, and now we don't. And, you know, we, your feet used to dance with me. Now they're just sort of laid up on my couch like you're kind of a loser. Um, or, or I used to brag to my uh, friends about how much you pampered me, and now you don't do that anymore, and my friends are kind of thinking you don't really care about me anymore. It's standard. You know, it's all the standard relationship objection stuff that you would put in a song. And, and the chorus, I'm sure Janet Jackson's a fine lady. The chorus took zero talent. What have you done for me lately? Ooh, 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 yeah. Well, wait, she did sing that twice. <laughs> you know, I wonder sometimes if that isn't our approach to God. I wonder if sometimes our approach to God isn't, well, what have you done for me lately. We are singing back to Him. What, what have you done for me lately? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Yeah. It's, um, 
It's commercial language. It's business relationship language. It's really not relationship. It's not relational language. It's not, it's not the language of, of love and care and, and mutual care and concern for one another. It's a business transaction. What have you done for me lately? Because if the answer, we're implying of course, if the answer is not much, then we might as well end this relationship. There's no value, there's no benefit, there's no point. That's exactly the context that we just read. It's exactly where Malachi finds the people of Israel in verses 13 through 18. The people of Israel think like this towards God. They treat God that way. What have you done for me lately? They want a business transaction. It's a, it's a commercial transaction. They're dealing in commodities, not in a personal, loving relationship with God. In fact, you can... You kind of get the sense that they think they belong to him, and they think this is that it's all one-sided. They think their relationship with God is all one-sided, that they're doing all the work, and he's not really doing much of anything. Your words have been hard against me. How have we spoken against you? It's that that standard incredulous sort of response back to God. You bring these accusations against us. And this time, I, I got to be honest with you, this time I sort of feel their pain. I sort of sympathize with them a little bit because I'm not sure they've said much against God. I'm really not sure they've talked about Him at all. I don't think He matters one bit. Throughout the whole book, God and His laws, His commands have been really a, a tangent to their life. They've not really been part and parcel of who they are. So they may actually have a point. We haven't spoken against you because quite honestly, God, we haven't talked about you at all. We don't really care much about you at all. So I sort of understand their objection this time. But they've said hard things about God against God. Remember, remember the first uh, disputation, the, the first charge against Israel all the way back in chapter 1. He starts with, I love you. And they go, really? I don't see it. You know we were just in Babylon for 70 years, right God? You see this temple we've rebuilt? Yeah, we've rebuilt it, but it's kind of lame. It's really not, it's not nearly as fancy as the last one. And, and there was a time when Israel, Judah, it was this big, great nation, and now we're just sort of barely a city without even any walls. Are you sure you love us, God? That's, that's been their response throughout the whole book. They say they love Him. They claim to love Him, but they bring Him lame and, and blind and blemished sacrifices. They claim to love and serve Him and obey Him, but they've been putting away their Israelite wives to marry idol worshipers instead. They say they love Him, but even as we saw in the last 
passage, they've withheld the tithe. The truth is, they wonder. And you see it in verse 14. They wonder, why do we even bother? What's the point? Why should I? I mean, God doesn't do anything for me. Why even bother with all of this? They say it's vain. They say it's a waste of time. They say it's pure vanity to love and to serve God. For that matter, the people around them, the, the, the groups of sort of Persians, Babylonians, the foreigners around them, they don't even pretend to serve the God of the Bible. And, and they seem to be doing just fine. They seem to prosper just fine. We, however, aren't doing so well. What's the point? Why bother? This is a complete waste of my time and my energy. The people out there are wicked and arrogant and are doing just fine. We, however, are not. You ever seen those billboards that say, like, try God or try Jesus? Or the bumper sticker, you know, try Jesus. Um, you know why I hate those signs? You don't, he's not a, he's not a new car at the dealership. You go down to the dealership and you walk around and you, you look for the new car you want or the used car you want and, and you go, I like this one. I think this one is the right size, the gas mileage. Let me take it for a test drive. And you bring it back and go, yeah, that's not the one. Let me try a different car. You know, now you can buy mattresses and you get like a 30-night money-back guarantee. You can try mattresses. You can try a toaster oven. You can, you can try new shoes. You can try all of those sorts of things. But the billboard, Try Jesus, it implies that you can come to Him Merely in a business relationship. Give him a test. Take him out for a spin. And see if he doesn't do something for you. See if he doesn't immediately start to bless and honor you. And everything's going to go right. Your kids, they will never disobey you again. That income, suddenly you get the raise at work that everybody else deserved. But you're going to get it. In fact, you're going to get everybody's. And your raise is going to be amazingly huge. And for that matter, the things that are broken in your house, they're going to fix themselves. Etc., etc., etc. Try Jesus. And you know, after 30 days, all of that stuff isn't happening for you. Well, you can return Him. And your mattress too, because it's uncomfortable. The people of Israel are, are trying God. They're essentially, they've decided that they will take Him out for a test drive. And, and it's not paying off so well. Things aren't going the way they think they should. In fact, look at verse 14. They even use business language. What profit is it? I don't see evidence in my life. I don't see evidence in my bank account. I don't see 
evidence in the things around me that, that say it's actually worth following and serving God. If there's, if, if there's no, if there's no reason to deny myself pleasure or joy, if there's no reason to, to walk in mourning is the language they use in verse 14. If there's absolutely no profit of keeping His laws, then why should I do it at all? It's, it's Billy Joel. A couple thousand years before Billy Joel was. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. I might as well mark myself out with them because being with the saints is not proving to be of any value at all. For that matter, the evildoers, verse 15, not only do they prosper, but they actually put God to the test and they get away with it. That's not, you have, Be careful. We had to touch on the word test before because in the last passage... God actually commands us, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, and He says, test me and see if I won't bless you. If He commands you to test Him, you have the right to do so. However, that's, that's an act of faith. That's an act of trusting. Usually testing, particularly here, it's an act of doubt. It's an act of, I'm going to do this and see if you really exist. It's Nemo. Do you remember when Nemo swam out? Can I say this in a sermon? Can I use the word? He swam out to touch the boat. Except he didn't call it a boat. Um, he, swam, he swims out to touch the boat. I won't use the word because all the kids will be distracted for good. Although they may be already. He swims out and he turns around and he looks at his dad. And of course his dad's not, not like right there. Everybody, you know, you can't swim out that far. It's dangerous, his overprotective father. And his classmates, they're all kind of back there on the continental shelf or whatever. And they swims out to the deep end of the ocean. And he reaches up and he does, and he glares at his dad. And he goes, touch. Remember that? It's an act of defiance. The people around Israel have swum out to the boat and they've looked at God in the face and said, I'm going to touch it anyway. What are you going to do about it? You're not going to do anything about it at all. You know why? Because I'm not sure you exist. And if you do, you clearly don't care. That's their assumption, by the way. They've, they've basically raised two objections against serving God. For one, they say we've tried Him and it's not been beneficial. And for another, those who haven't tried Him seem to be doing just fine and they don't need Him and God is blessing them. So clearly, I must be thinking wrongly about my relationship with God. Their reasoning is basically this. Whatever happens to us in this life, is a direct result of our behavior. You know you've thought that. You know you've thought before. You know why I didn't catch any red lights all the way to work this morning? Because I actually got up and had my quiet time. And, and you know why I caught all the red lights on the way to work this morning? 
because not only did I not have my quiet time, but I fussed at my wife this morning. And I caught all the red lights. You see? I mean, we have this assumption that, that every individual thing that happens to us in this life is a direct result of our behavior. And there's a second assumption that if God doesn't do something promptly to punish evil, then either He can't or He doesn't care. Either He lacks the power or He doesn't care one bit what we do. You know, those assumptions drive rebellious people today. There are plenty of people out there, and and we've thought them before. There are plenty of people out there today who are convinced that every little thing that happens to me is a direct result of my behavior. God's getting me back for something, or He's given me all this great stuff because... You know, I was, I was really nice to my kids, and I was really nice to my wife, and I read that verse in the Bible, and so when I drove to work, all the green lights. I was early. There are also the assumptions that wickedness exists, therefore God must not. And if He does, He doesn't seem to care much. There are plenty of people in our world today thinking those exact thoughts. But I want you to notice there's a second group of people in this passage. Yes, there are plenty of people in the church today, in our pews today, although so few churches have pews anymore, in our chairs today, who have this same kind of rebellious thoughts, this kind of business relationship with God. But then there's a second group. They're the ones, verse 16, fear the Lord, who honor Him, who esteem Him, who serve Him. In fact, that's the language used to describe them. We're told in verse 16, those who feared the Lord got together and had a discussion, had a conversation. And then they're described at the end of verse 16, those who fear the Lord and those who esteem or honor His name. You know, those are, those are probably the twin pillars of discipleship. Those are the twin pillars of growing in grace. Because those who fear the Lord will be, be encouraged, be driven to, to obey, the, obey Him more and more. And those who fear His name are those who, I mean, who esteem, who honor. That's, that's worship. That's a picture of worship. Those who worship the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of the Bible and those who serve and obey Him. That's the... The heart of discipleship. In fact, notice, I've pointed this out to you before. I'll do it again here. I'll do it again who knows how many times throughout the years to come. But you'll notice in your English Bibles, the word LORD is in all caps. That's an indication. That's telling you that the English translators are translating the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's His covenant-making, covenant-keeping name. The name He gave to Moses back in Exodus 3. It's 
a covenantal relationship. They fear Him. They respect and awe him, and, and stand in awe of Him and they esteem and honor and worship His name. That's essentially the heart of discipleship. You know, there are people in our, in our world, there are Christians in our world who will sort of downplay the the role of obedience. It's, it's, it's being a Pharisee. It's being legalistic. And, and you don't need any of that, they will say. But throughout Scripture, God seeks faithful obedience. Not as a means of gaining salvation, but as evidence of it. It's a reflection of a new heart. It's not the means by which we gain His favor. If we think that we can obey and make Him love us, we are seriously confused. But He longs for our obedience. He longs for our hearts and our actions to reflect a love for Him. I want you to notice something in verse 16. We don't know what the discussion was. We don't know how the conversation went. We don't know what they actually said. But we're told in verse 16, those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. I want you to notice something about the Christian life. You need each other. You get the sense in the context. You get the sense given what's gone before the few verses right before verse 16, you get the impression that they got together to say, yes, it is worth it. Yes, it is. Absolutely. It's worth every bit. Following and honoring and serving God is worth every minute. It's worth every ounce of energy. It's worth every brain cell you can give it. They're encouraging each other. Yes, we know there are people out there who are saying, what's the point? What does it profit? It's a waste of time. And so you get the sense they get together to say, let's encourage each other. Let's make sure we all agree. Let's be reminded all over again. It is worth it. Be encouraged, brother. Be encouraged, sister. Yes, it is absolutely worth every ounce of your energy to love and serve, to fear the Lord and to esteem His name. That, by the way, is true biblical fellowship. When God's people get together, it's fine and good. I'm happy to talk about football as long as Clemson's doing okay. We'll see this year. But I need your help not to talk about Clemson football, to talk about our Savior, to talk about to encourage each other in our walk with Christ. That's true biblical fellowship. When the church is gathered, oh, that we might more and more speak with one another in such a way that we walk out going, it's worth it. I've been reminded all over again, yes, it's worth it. And my brothers and sisters have helped me in that. That's one of my favorite things about hearing singing on Sundays. That you're singing encourages me. What you're singing encourages me. We need all of that. 
but I want you to notice something. You and I don't have the content of the discussion. But the audience does. The Lord heard what they said. The Lord knew they met together. The Lord heard what their conversation was. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And then there's a book of remembrance. Names written in a book of life in God's presence. This, by the way, would have had special meaning to these people. Remember, these people just came out of Babylon. Uh, they were held captive in, in, the, in the country of Babylon. Babylonians conquer um, uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, and take them into exile. Well, then the Persians come along and conquer Babylon. And it's a Persian king that allows the Israelites to go back home. So there's your Israel history for the morning. Which means these people were contemporaries of Esther. Esther the queen in Persia. Esther's cousin Mordecai overhears a plot to overthrow and kill the king. Mordecai tells Esther. Esther tells the king. And his name, the, the facts, his, his kindness to the king is recorded in a book of remembrance. That's in chapter 2 of Esther. In Esther 6, the king can't sleep. And so he has the book of remembrance brought out. Evidently, that would help you sleep. He has the book brought out and says, read from, from the book to me. And so, so the, the scribe, the squire, whoever it is, turns and finds and just reads. And he reads about Mordecai saving the king's life. And the king says, what do we ever do for Mordecai? You can read the rest in the book of Esther. That's a book of remembrance. God doesn't seem to be writing, however, events. He seems to be writing names. It seems to be a, a book of remembrance recorded with names written of those who feared the Lord. It's the book of life. It's that the, the names recorded there. These are the people who fear the Lord and who esteem His name. You want to be encouraged? Look what He calls them. God's treasured possession. Those people, His people, God's people, those who trust in Christ and Him alone for their salvation are God's treasured possession. It's Exodus 19 all over again. God says, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession. It's Deuteronomy 7 where he tells them they were his treasured possession. It's 1 Peter 2 where you and I are told that we are a chosen race, a people for his own possession. You see, the people in the first half of the passage have this notion that God tolerates them. The people in the second half of, the, of this passage have this notion that God treasures them. If your hope is in Christ, that's true of you. For His believers, for His saints, 
That's true of you. He doesn't simply tolerate you. Trust me, children, your parents actually do from time to time get frustrated that you talk so much. I hate to admit it. I hate to... All your questions. Why? How come? When? How much longer? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Now are we there? Trust me, your parents actually get a little annoyed with that. i got to be honest. I hate to give away our secrets. That's because we're sinners. God looks at you and says, you're my treasured possession. I don't just tolerate you. I value the questions. I look forward to the time spent together. But there is coming a day when God will finally and fully separate those two groups of people. They'll be be separated. We're told in verse 18... Uh, You will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who doesn't. Just to be clear, that's parallel. The righteous are those who serve God. The wicked are those who don't. Just to make sure you saw the parallel connection clearly. There's coming a day when Christ returns when He separates those two groups of people. And those who trust in Christ and Him alone for their salvation will be His treasured possession permanently, fully, forever. And those who think that God merely tolerates them will be tolerated no more. Will be cast into outer darkness for all eternity. Jesus tells you all about that day in Matthew 25. Let me make three applications from this passage. First, Just to sort of reiterate, oh, that our gatherings at Grace Covenant Church, not just on Sunday morning, but at Bible study, at Sunday night fellowship, at Bible studies throughout the week, at those times when you decide, I'm just going to call so-and-so and and say, hey, let's get lunch. Or, Or when we just get together informally off and on throughout the week. Whenever you show up at the at the store and you happen to be there at the same time as somebody else. Oh, that our meetings might be marked by mutual encouragement to love and serve God. To fear Him and to esteem His name, especially as we face growing opposition to the kingdom of Christ in our culture. A second application I want you to notice. Verse 17 is actually an encouragement. God always has His people. He always has His remnant. You might walk around outside and think, boy, this world sure is getting dark. I'm just not so sure. I'm really worried. I think the church is going to die and I think think evil is going to win and the church is getting smaller and people are leaving it and the kingdom of God is going to get squashed and I'm wringing my hands and I'm afraid God always has His remnant. You may be tempted to think that the church is going to collapse. God always has His people. His kingdom cannot and shall not fail. A third application. The people of God are spared as a man spares his son. Did you notice that language in verse 17? They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. 
In that day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. He loves you enough that He didn't spare His Son. He wouldn't hold back the spear. He wouldn't hold back the nails. In fact, He loves you more than a man. He will spare you and, and, and loves you more than a man who spares his son who serves Him because He actually was willing to sacrifice His Son so that He might even have you. It's only through the death of His Son that He can have you as a treasured possession. Which means you should be encouraged. You're treasured because He bought you with a price. He paid His Son to own you, to have you, to buy you, to make you His own. Which means He treasured you when you were still a rebel. When you were still dead in your sins. He was willing to part with the price of His Son so that you might be His. Which means He's never going to let you go. He gave up His Son so that you might be His. You're His permanently. Forever. Do you wrestle with doubt? Do you, do you struggle with, with assurance of your salvation? Let this verse remind you that He spared not His Son so that you might be His. Nothing can or will ever snatch you out of His hands. He will not allow it. You wrestle with that sense of does God really love me? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty bad. I'm, I'm pretty wicked. Well, this verse says, yes, He loves you. He loves you enough that He will spare you in the last day when Christ comes back. He will spare you as a man spares his son. Except He didn't. Then He will. But when, his Christ, when Christ came, when His Son came the first time, He didn't. He didn't spare Him. So that you could be. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that our love is grounded in not in our goodness, not in our obedience, not in our merit, but in the person and work of Christ. And we pray that you would use this truth, this reality, to encourage and strengthen our faith that we might fear You more, that we might esteem Your name, that we might long to bring honor and glory to You in our lives and in this world. Strengthen and equip us for that work we pray. In Christ's name, Amen.